0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Anti-War News for Monday, November 28th, 2022. I hope everybody had a good weekend. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Europe is getting fed up with the U.S. So high-level European officials are furious with the Biden administration and are now accusing the U.S. of profiting from the war in Ukraine, while Europe is facing a potential energy crisis. So this is, uh, according to a report from Politico, they quoted a senior EU official who said, quote, the fact is, if you look at it soberly, the country that is most profiting from this war is the U.S. because they are selling more gas and at higher prices and because they are selling more weapons, end quote. So the U.S.-led sanctions campaign on Russia has really backfired on Europe. As it has ratcheted up energy prices to the point where Europeans may be facing blackouts this winter and and rationing and things like that. And on top of this energy situation now, European leaders also fear that they will lose out on investments due to unprecedented subsidies included in America's Inflation Reduction Act, which President Biden signed into law in August. So this piece of legislation, it includes $369 billion in subsidies and tax breaks for what they consider green businesses, incentivizing companies to invest in the U.S. instead of Europe. So European leaders have publicly criticized the U.S. for the legislation. Uh, Last week, I went over uh, France's finance minister said that the, the U.S. by doing this was pursuing Chinese style. Industrial policies by introducing these subsidies, and now European leaders, you know Germany and France, the biggest economies in Europe, are considering subsidies of their own, signaling the beginning of a new trade war. So it looks like there's going to be a trade war now between the U.S. and Europe because of this legislation, and there is also that Chips Act, that microchip, uh, big bill that. Uh, President Biden also recently signed into law that includes about $52 billion in subsidies to incentivize semiconductor manufacturers to build new, build new facilities inside the U.S. So this senior EU official told Politico that the double whammy of high energy prices and loss of trade subsidies could and loss of trade to the subsidies could turn public opinion against supporting Ukraine. This official said, quote, we are really at a historic juncture. America needs to realize that public opinion is shifting in many EU countries, end quote. So this Politico report said that the Inflation Reduction Act brought Brussels into full-blown panic mode and is causing European officials to question if the US is really an ally. So this is a different EU official. A diplomat said, quote, The Inflation Reduction Act has changed everything. Is Washington still our ally or not? So the EU is also unhappy that it's purchasing American gas for four times the cost of what it's sold for in the US, although the difference in price could be explained by transportation costs and the fact that it's resold by European companies. But So the U.S. government doesn't control the price of gas that's being sold to Europe, but however, the Biden administration did pressure Europe to wean itself off of much cheaper Russian energy, uh, which in turn did benefit American gas companies. And despite leading the sanctions campaign against Russia, the U.S. takes no responsibility for the high energy prices, even though President Biden himself did admit Earlier on in the war that these policies would hurt both Americans and Europeans, he said, expect to feel it, uh, the sanctions. So the report quoted a spokesperson for the National Security Council that basically just said, uh, you know, the rise in gas prices is in Europe is caused by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And that's it. And, that, and what they call his energy war against Europe. Well, his energy war uh, wouldn't have started if it wasn't for all these sanctions and the U.S. pressure to get off Russian gas and other uh, energy like oil and coal. Um, And again, you know, when it comes to the gas, we saw when the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up, what did Blinken say? He said it's a tremendous opportunity to get Europe off uh, Russian energy once and for all, and we could sell them a lot more LNG. Um, so, you know, they say stuff like that publicly and of course there's going to be some backlash from Europe and I didn't realize, you know, when they signed, when this inflation reduction act, I really didn't know much about it. I mean, it's clearly not going to reduce inflation, but I didn't realize it had all these subsidies and I, I gotta kind of look into it a little more cause I don't really understand how that's all packed in there, <clears throat> but by far the biggest beneficiary of Biden's Ukraine policy is the weapons industry, as the U.S. and its allies have shipped tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine. And now this policy, which is being led by Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense and former Raytheon board member, has depleted Western military stockpiles, leading to a major uptick in orders for U.S. military equipment. They're cashing in uh, just like crazy over this policy. The U.S. sends these weapons to Ukraine, then they have to buy more to replenish their stockpiles. They're buying weapons for Ukraine to send to, to you know, purchasing them for Ukraine to send them over there. Then you have the European countries sending weapons to Ukraine. Some of the Eastern Europeans, the former Soviet states, they're getting off old Russian-made equipment. They want to get them on uh US and West, you know, NATO gear. They want to be interoperable with NATO. So it's just there's just so much money to be made for them. And the next one, uh, this is related. This is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. 20 NATO states are pretty tapped out after weapons transfers to Ukraine. So two thirds of NATO have depleted their stockpiles by sending weapons to Kiev, according to an alliance official. Even larger NATO states are struggling to meet the demands of Ukraine's war effort. So the New York Times reported on Sunday that that nato is struggling to meet ukraine's battlefield needs according to one nato official 20 out of 30 members are as this official put it pretty tapped out regarding their ability to supply ukraine with additional weapons while larger states like the us france germany and italy have the ability to arm ukraine those governments have also resisted sending specific weapons systems requested by kiev Ukraine has long, they've been looking for these longer range missiles, um, from the U S, but they've, the U S has held out out of concerns that they could be used to hit Russian territory. Part of the cause of dwindling arm supplies, the massive demand for artillery. Currently, Ukrainian forces are firing thousands of rounds daily, but the U S can only produce 15,000 rounds per month. So basically, um, and this New York times report quoted, uh, an official from the European Council on Foreign Relations saying that a day in Ukraine in artillery shells is equivalent to a month or more in Afghanistan. It's just a completely different war than anything that the US or European allies have fought uh, you know, in decades. And the increase in demand for weapons has been a significant boon for the Western arms industry. Uh, US arms makers are profiting off the war, um, as I just went over, but This is, you know, it's pretty significant. If you look at the numbers of artillery, I know the U.S. seems to be running out of artillery rounds uh, for the howitzers that they've been sending. And, you know, they keep saying that they're ready to support Ukraine for the long term, for the long term. That's what we keep hearing. Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, just said it the other day. But if this war really lasts, you know, for years and years, if there's no talks and it and it drags out. Um, are they really going to be able to keep supporting it, uh, for as long as they say, you know, production is kind of the big thing. Can they produce stuff fast enough, but I'm sure they're going to try because of all this money that they're making. All right. Uh, so the next one, top house Republicans call for Biden to send longer range weapons to Ukraine to strike Crimea. So, representatives Michael McCall and Mike Turner they appeared on ABC News this week on Sunday, and they pledged that aid for Ukraine will continue to flow unimpeded over uh, once Republicans have a majority in the House, and they're going to take over in January, the new Congress. Uh, McCall, who he's he will likely head the Foreign Relations uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. In the next Congress, he also called for the Biden administration to send longer range weapons to Kiev. He said that his criticism of the Biden administration was that it, as he put it, slow walked military aid to Ukraine by being too hesitant to provide longer range weapons. So this is his criticism is basically that Biden hasn't done enough. And he's saying that the U.S. should provide Ukraine with army tactical missile systems. Um, those are artillery munitions, surface-to-surface missiles with a range of up to 190 miles. And he's saying that they should give this to Ukraine so they can hit targets inside Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014. Now, Ukrainian attacks on Crimea will likely lead to a, you know, major escalations from Russia, as they've showed us. Moscow did not start launching large scale attacks on energy infrastructure until October, which followed the truck bombing of the Crimean Bridge. So maybe they planned on doing it uh, for a while and then the, the truck bombing happened and they used it as an excuse to launch the energy, the strikes on energy infrastructure. But either way, it shows how seriously they take these Ukrainian attacks on Crimea. And he was asked by the host, McCall. Uh, if Ukrainian strikes in Crimea would incite Russia, he said uh, that the peninsula, he didn't say yes or no, he just said that it's fair game to target Crimea because it's not recognized as Russian territory. The US and Ukraine don't recognize it as Russian territory. So both McCall and Turner, they insisted that Republicans will support continuing to arm Ukraine, but said that there is growing support for more oversight. So when discussing you know, these comments from Kevin McCarthy, who's likely going to be the house speaker saying that, that they're not going to write a blank check for Ukraine. These two basically said, we're going to keep sending them aid, but there's going to be accountability and we're not going to send them a blank check, but you know, there's, they, they're still very supportive of, uh, supporting Ukraine in this war. And then I just mentioned, um, that, Bill that was introduced by Marjorie Taylor Greene and a group of House Republicans, a small group. I know Thomas Massey and Matt Gates. I forget the other two, but I'm pretty sure they all voted against that $40 billion Ukraine aid bill. And they're against sending more weapons to Ukraine. But again, that's just a small group. Um, but they introduced a bill that would audit the funds Congress has approved to spend on the war. The legislation is likely going to be voted down if, if it comes to a vote during this session of Congress. But uh, Green said that she would reintroduce the bill in the next Congress. All right, uh, the next one is about the Turkish offensive in Syria. So the U.S. is mediating between the Kurdish SDF, which is the Kurdish, the U.S.-backed Kurdish forces in northeast Syria, and Turkey to prevent a ground offensive. And this is according to Kurdish media reports. And this is from the Cradle; uh, they're a pretty good uh, source for this region of the world. So Turkey has reportedly laid out its conditions for refraining from a ground offensive against the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces. That's the SDF. According to local sources, the Turkish bombardment, although ongoing, has decreased significantly as of the last few days. This report is from November 26th, so Saturday. So yeah, things did. Turkey really launched major airstrikes on last week, starting Sunday, and they continued for days does look like Thursday, Friday. Maybe they they declined a bit. Um, so they're saying that they've decreased significantly. The, the sources added that this is due to the current U.S. mediation between Turkey and the Kurdish militant group. And there's been contacts between uh, the top Turkish general, top U.S. general. And then there was a meeting on November 24th between Turkey's defense minister and the U.S. ambassador to Turkey. Where some discussions were taken took place on this issue. And according to these reports, during this meeting, the U.S. ambassador reportedly offered a 30 kilometer pullback of Kurdish forces to prevent Turkey from launching its promised ground offensive. So Erdogan's been saying he wants a buffer zone on the border in Syria. And I guess the U.S., this is what they're offering, is to pull back a bit uh, so Turkey doesn't come in and according to the to a Kurdish media report, Ankara has ankara has not only demanded a 30 kilometer withdrawal of the SDF from Turkey's borders but also that all members of the Tur- Kurdistan Workers party that's the PKK in Syria be handed over to Turkish custody um, so it's tough to say that might be kind of a non-starter demand because they might consider you know a lot of people to be PKK members. Um, So, oh, and apparently they're also asking for the allocation of partial oil revenues in SDF-controlled areas for the benefit of factions loyal to Ankara, referring to the the groups that Turkey backs in uh, Syria. So, you know, they're making some serious demands Turkey here. So I guess we'll see how this plays out um, if Erdogan launches an invasion or not. The U.S., it seems like, really wants to please Turkey because they want them to approve Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Um, all right, the next one here, so this is more about Syria. Uh, there was a, another rocket attack on, the, on a U.S. base in Syria. So U.S. Central Command said Friday that two rockets were fired at a U.S. base in northeast Syria, but no injuries or damage occurred. And this marked the second attempted attack on U.S. forces in the country in nine within nine days. So this is, you know, kind of a non-event. May it it might seem like that some rockets were fired at a U.S. base in northeast Syria. They said there was no injuries and no damage. And then the last known attack took place on November 17th at the U.S. base in Green Village in northeast Syria, also resulted in no injuries or damage, uh, but. The U.S. has previously you know, used these rocket attacks to, to launch some pretty serious airstrikes. Uh, back in August, there was a drone attack on a U.S. base in Syria. No damage, no injuries. And then a couple of days later, the U.S. launched airstrikes against a Shia militia, never presenting any kind of evidence at all that they were responsible. No way to prove it. Um, and that set off a tit-for-tat escalation that left at least four fighters dead. There are higher estimates that more were killed. Up to 10 people were killed in these U.S. airstrikes and three U.S. troops wounded. So really these rocket attacks just show the danger of the U.S. presence in Syria, how at any time uh, a a major conflict could erupt between the U.S. and all sorts of forces in Syria. A lot of people want the U.S. to leave. It's an illegal occupation of eastern Syria. Um, And according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, that's a British-based organization. The U.S. is reinforcing its positions in northeast Syria as about 100 trucks were spotted entering Syria from Iraq on Saturday, heading toward U.S. bases. So convoys between U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq are are pretty common. The, The bases in Iraq support the bases in Syria. It's pretty normal to see these convoys, but 100 trucks is a lot, I think. Um, So it might be that they're kind of building things up a little bit and it comes against the backdrop of Turkey's air and artillery strikes against the SDF and other Kurdish groups. Um, And then I just give another brief background of those strikes and why Turkey launched them because they blamed the PKK for the Istanbul bombing. And they say all these group Kurdish groups, the SDF, the YPG are, you know, the PKK's Syrian affiliate affiliates. And they say the bomber came from Syria. But for just for their to get their side out there, the PKK, SDF, all the Kurdish groups say they were not responsible for the Istanbul bombing. All right. So the next one here is uh, pretty interesting. Um, Nikkei Asia, the Japanese newspaper, they were allowed access to a meeting of the Trilateral Commission, which is like a, a pretty elite group. The, the Trilateral Commission, it was started in the 1970s. Um, it's sort of like a Bilderberg-esque group uh, between the U.S., Europe, and Asia. And it's about, you know, fostering ties. and um, But they're very secretive meetings, and they're, like, uh, you know, mostly former government officials that come in and out of the group. And um, but so they they – They were allowed access to one of these meetings for the first time. It's been almost 50 years since this group has existed. And reporters were allowed access to the meeting really to show, as they put it in this write-up of this meeting, uh, that the point was to show that there is a rift in this organization. And it was a meeting of their Asia-Pacific group, which uh, in that group, it's mostly represented by Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, Japan. China wasn't there. They said they invited Chinese officials, but none of them showed up. Um, so what's interesting about this is that really you have all these Asian officials saying that they're not happy with the U S China policy. This is a very long detailed article. So I just want to control F to the, to the highlights that that I wanted to tell you about what people should check it out. So this, the U S ambassador to Japan uh, gave a speech at one of these forums during this Asia Pacific Group meeting, and just went through the typical talking points: it's democracy versus autocracy, China China bad, U.S. good, rules based order, all that nonsense. And then afterward, um, there was some criticism. So a former, and I think condition of their of them attending this this conference was that they couldn't name officials uh, that they spoke with. So a former Japanese official said on background, you know, that we must engage in China and that if we force countries to choose sides, the Southeast nations, Southeast Asian nations will choose China. So, and then there's a few other officials that said that Philippine officials, even an Indian official, uh, which India is a little more uh, hardline towards China, but they kind of try to play the middle, uh, criticized, said, you know, you can't wish China away. So it's just a very interesting article, you know. It's like the elites, the Asian elites, are not happy with what the U.S. is doing, and they're saying that if we keep going in this path, there's going to be a conflict between uh, the U.S. and China, and who's going to pay the price? Um, Asians, uh, specifically Southeast Asians, and and they're saying that they're probably going to pick China's side if it comes into it. Yeah. So the Trilateral Commission, Trilateral Commission, it was founded by david rockefeller well i don't know if it was founded by david rockefeller but he wanted to include japan in the bilderberg group but uh which is a meeting between europe and north america but the dutch royal family rejected it so he created the new a new gathering with japan as a member which became this trilateral commission but yeah there's tons of quotes in here just about against u.s policy toward china So I think the U.S. is going to have a tough time building these alliances that they want to build in Asia. The next one here, uh, Taiwan's president quits as the party chief, as the head of her party, the Democratic Progressive Party. This is Tsai Ing-wen. So there was local elections in Taiwan, and the DPP, which is the ruling party, did not do well. And really, Tsai, the president, they, the whole, they based this whole election, on even though it was local, on China, on the threat of China, saying that they're, they'll stand up to China, and, and it was a losing strategy. So Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen resigned as the head of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party on Saturday after her strategy to frame local elections as showing defiance to China's rising bellicosity failed to pay off and win public support. The election for mayors, county chiefs, and local councillors are ostensibly about domestic issues such as the COVID-19 pandemic and crime, and those elected will not have a direct say on China policy. But Tsai had recast the election as being more than a local vote, saying the world is watching how Taiwan defends its democracy amid military tensions with China, which claims the island as its territory. The main opposition party, the Kuomintang, or the KMT was leading or claimed victory in 13 of 21 city mayor and county chief seats up for grabs, including the capital Taipei compared to the DPP's five. So yes, they did not do very well. So she's resigning as the head of the DPP, but she's still president. Um, She'll be president until 2024. She said that she rejected the resignation from her premier adding that she asked him to stay in office to ensure her policies would be properly implemented. So China's Taiwan Affairs Office is saying that the results show that mainstream Taiwanese public opinion was for peace, stability, and a good life, and that Beijing would keep working with Taiwan's people to promote peaceful relations and to oppose Taiwan independence and foreign interference. So both the DPP and the KMT. So what's interesting about the Kuomintang is that it is the party of Chiang Kai-shek. It was, you know, who who back when the Kuomintang was a military dictatorship that ran Taiwan. But now they are the more Beijing friendly party. Uh, They favor closer ties with China that they do deny being pro-Beijing. Basically, they believe in the one China policy, but differently. They think that they're. You know the rightful government of china it's kind of reversed and you know from taiwan that they should be the government of china as china thinks they should be the government of taiwan but the dpp is more independence minded although Tsai hasn't formally declared independence that's a move that could almost guarantee uh, chinese military intervention um so the, but the Kuomintang has accused Tsai in the DPP of being overly confrontational with China and of trying to, to besmirch the party for being red, which is a reference to the colors of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. And, and now it is important to note this is a domestic election, so it wasn't really about relations with China. And that's a, a take that I saw in a, some Taiwanese media, was that kind of by making it about China and losing Tsai is kind of showing the world uh, maybe falsely that people uh, don't like her policies on, on China. Um, But when it could be more so that they preferred something different domestically. Um, But in any case, it definitely shows that um, they're not all on board with uh, what, what she has been doing. Um, All right. So the next one, Ben Gavir, he is the, hardliner, the Israeli uh, far-right leader in the coalition with uh, Netanyahu. He is needed to for Netanyahu to form this coalition, and he is going to be the new security minister uh, under this new coalition deal. I don't think it's totally finalized, but it looks like um, Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party has signed its first coalition deal with Ben Gavir's Jewish power party, as it seeks to build a new israeli government with far-right parties following elections earlier this month the agreement which would only come into effect if lakud reaches a similar deal with other parties in order to secure a parliamentary majority in the nesset would see ben gavir appointed to the new role of minister of national security with significantly extended powers so this would give him a lot of power um and they're going to expand the role of what security minister has control of to more law enforcement agencies and things like that. Um, so, yeah, this coalition government, it's going to be pretty bad news for the Palestinians. Um, this article is from Middle East Eye, by the way. They have good stuff about the Israeli elections. All right. So the last news story here: the U.S. grants Chevron a license to pump oil again in Venezuela. So this is follow following up on a story I went over in the last show uh, that the U.S. has granted Chevron this limited license, and which is this is the most significant easing of sanctions on the country since they were imposed by the Trump administration. And this move came after the government of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro signed a deal with an opposition coalition to unlock about $3 billion in Venezuelan funds that were frozen by U.S. and European banks. Under the deal, the funds will go toward humanitarian and economic development projects. So according to the Treasury Department, the license granted to Chevron prohibits the Venezuelan state oil company PDVSA from receiving profits from any oil sales by Chevron. And the license is only limited to Chevron. It does not allow other companies to work with PDVSA. So the Treasury Department said that all other sanctions on Venezuela will remain in place and that the U.S. will vigorously enforce these sanctions. So um, it is uh, an easing of sanctions, but there's still a lot of sanctions on Venezuela. And Biden administration officials are saying that the license is good for six months, but it could be revoked or amended at any time if Maduro stops talks with the opposition coalition and those talks have been taking place in Mexico so the trump administration first imposed sanctions on venezuela in 2017 and ratcheted up the pressure in 2019 when they recognized juan Guaido as the interim president and they failed a very uh, they backed a very failed coup against maduro and the U.S. continue to increase sanctions and put Venezuela under essentially a complete trade embargo. Um, and the Biden administration's effort to get this oil flowing out of Venezuela is uh, an effort to keep global prices down. It's not because they care about Venezuelans uh, suddenly. Uh, but that's it for the news for today. Uh, we link to a lot of good viewpoints from around the web, including one, our spotlight is from Bruce Fine, uh, if you're familiar with him. But it's in the Hill, and it's interesting. He's saying Congress should end the war in Ukraine by withdrawing from NATO. So it's actually a pretty hardcore Abed against this whole mess and, and against NATO and saying that NATO's obsolete. Let's get out of it. Um, so, yeah, go check that out. But that's it for me for today. I'll uh, catch you tomorrow with some more news. Like, subscribe, subscribe comment on YouTube, Odyssey, and Rumble. Listen to the audio wherever you listen to podcasts. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That stuff really helps. Share on social media, all that good stuff. Uh, Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.